bell number two. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, as you can hopefully see from behind me, we are still in the book of John. Uh, today, focusing on the topic of women. Uh, I've already mentally prepared for the potential anguish this may cause some of you. Um, so, But we're going to find a way through it uh, with the grace and love that God provides. As you know, we've been going through a thematic approach to John. Instead of a verse-by-verse, we're trying to hit on key themes, ideas, understandings that John is trying to directly and incredibly very subtly uh, tell his reader things to look for, things that they can hold on to to build their faith, to grow their love and devotion to God, and to follow after Jesus. And as we've been doing every week, uh, we're highly trying to encourage each and every one of you to read through the book of John, ideally in one setting if you can, um, but as I keep going back to court's comment, you don't have to read it, you can watch it, you can listen to it, there's all kinds of media options out there for you. So there's different ways you can absorb the content of this book that will be powerful to you. So this morning I give it up to you and ask you all, has anyone had any uh, revelations, excitements, experiences as you've read through, uh, hopefully been reading through John this week? Yes, Liz, I was hoping for you. So Liz is on a roll. Uh, Liz mentioned three different things. Uh, one, when Jesus washes the apostles' feet, um, it, the intent was not necessarily that Jesus is serving them, but he was then trying to teach them a lesson that you need to go and do likewise. Go and serve others. You know, wash the feet of others. And a pinnacle point of that story is he washed the feet of Judas. He washed the feet of his enemy, sitting right there, knowing what was going to happen, and he freely did it, and still freely loved him. Um, the other one is talking about, Liz mentioned, was miracles, why the, the Jewish leaders didn't want him to do them. They didn't like it, because they were afraid that what Jesus was doing would cause such a ruckus, such a riot, that it would then have the Romans come in and squash what it was going on, remove them from their position, and they valued the opinion of men more than God. So they wanted to hold their position uh, in the Jewish leadership. Uh, and then the last one, remind me again, I'm already forgetting. Third comment, I now forgot it. Oh, parables, yes, sorry. Um, so Jesus keeps trying to tell them, hey, I'm going to die. This is going to happen. But they didn't understand, and it's mentioned at least, I think, twice when we were talking about misunderstandings and ironies, but they didn't catch it till after Jesus was glorified. 
They didn't understand what Jesus was doing until after the resurrection with emphasis put on the fact that they didn't really understand until the Spirit was given to them. And then the Spirit was able to guide and teach and and instruct them on what had been happening, what Jesus had said, because John mentions emphatically they didn't understand this until he was glorified, until the Helper came. So huge emphasis on the Spirit, the importance of that, um, and that we need to also use the Spirit to guide us as we go through. So thank you for that. Uh, Anybody else? No wrong answers. Or no dumb questions. Isn't that what you're always told in school? And as always, we're going to be reminded of what John's main thesis is as you go through his book. John 20, 30 through 31. So then many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Every word, every phrase, every story, every idea gets filtered through John's thesis here. If you're reading something, if you're experiencing something, and it isn't leading you to life in Christ, then I would suggest you're misreading it, you're misunderstanding it, which is what we tried to hit on a few weeks ago. Um, And as you saw on the first screen, we're going to find life in a way that Jesus was emphasizing as it relates to women. Um, For those of you who have been reading through John, you probably have picked up that there are several women mentioned in high prominence Uh, in his gospel. And before we get to those women, I'd like to just quickly touch base on what a first century community would have looked like and how they would have treated or thought about women. First topic is what does an ancient woman, how do they relate to this idea of being taught or teaching? And if you can remember, a couple weeks ago, I think it was, I brought up the word Mishnah, uh, which is essentially Uh, imagine Jewish rabbis writing commentaries and that's essentially what the Mishnah is but it's part of the Talmud which is the Jewish law Um, so essentially they hold these writings to be uh, of high degree of of, of reference and and they'll often go back to them to help them interpret their own law and what they should do and here's some of the sayings you'll find in there from Sota 21b anyone who teaches his daughter Torah is teaching her promiscuity lechery, harlotry, or sexuality. And for those of you who are probably in the same boat I was when I saw the word lechery, never heard it before, so I had to look it up, and it essentially means what those other words are saying. The context of what's happening here is certain rabbis of the time, it was not always the prominent view, but a very highly held view, was that you don't teach your daughters or women Torah. You don't teach them the law. Because to do so would be like the equivalent to teaching them to be harlots or to be prostitutes. It's not something you do. It's a waste of time. Again, in that same context, 3-4, may the words of the Torah be burned and not be delivered to women. Same context. We don't want women to know what's in this thing. They don't need to know. It's not their right to know. It won't help them. It won't benefit them. Our community will not be better off if women know what's in there. This next one's kind of odd. One is obligated to teach his daughter Torah. Seems to contradict the first two. But wait. So that when she needs to drink, she will know that the merit will assist her. This is referencing Numbers 5, 11 through 31, which we're not going to read out of length of time. But what's happening in Numbers is you find this account of basically a husband thinks his wife committed adultery, but he can't prove it. So he goes to the priest, and the priest essentially has her drink this concoction, uh, which is a mixture of dust and some other things. And essentially, if she has a negative reaction to this drink, then she's adulterous. She did do this. If she does not have a negative reaction to this drink, then she's clear of any wrongdoing. And there's a lot of implications in that story, a lot of odd things to know, but basically they would say, well, teach her those types of things 
to know whether or not she's an adulterous woman so that she knows what it means when she goes to the priest and her husband wants her to drink this thing. Um, in no context at all is this trying to ex- explain that she should be taught the whole Torah, but just the things that help keep her uh, sexually pure and, and right in relationship to her husband. Many other examples you could go through. That's just a taste. Another topic that often came up in ancient Israel was um, this idea of women in the court system, um, a women, woman being a witness. And this is a quick paraphrase. Since the Talmud, which again is Jewish law, women have been barred by Jewish law from serving as witnesses, both at courtroom trials to establish the facts of the case, and at religious rituals to witness a ceremony like marriage. In general, under, under strict Jewish law, women were not allowed to be witnesses. Their testimony was deemed in, invaluable. Um, they weren't considered to be trustworthy. Uh, essentially, if something happened and the only witnesses were women, then basically you had no witnesses. Uh, they would not take their word in a court of law. It was not documented. It was not kept down. They just they didn't treat it with any level of degree. And again, going back to the missionary, here's another one, Shabbat 4.1. The oath of testimony is practiced with regard to men, but not with regard to women. And then if you know Josephus, um, he's a well-known historian of the day where we get a lot of our um, understanding of Jewish culture at the time. And in his antiquities, he says, the testimony of women is not accepted as valid because of the lightheadedness and brashness of the female sex. Um, could you imagine saying that today uh, and then living the next day? Uh, uh, but this was, a, this was a very prominent mindset uh, of the day. And, it, and we laugh now. Cause, and I would also caution you, um, I think we have a, 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 a wanting to think that we're more advanced, that we're more progressive today, that uh, you know, we're, we're, we're better than they were. And I would warn you not to do that. Uh, you have to realize the world they're in. You know, we're, we're so quick to, to destroy other people when they don't see the things the way we do, but then we negate the fact that there's hundreds, thousands of years that have founded this viewpoint. And so it's, it, be careful to you know, immediately judge someone or, or criticize them when they come at you with this. But, however, we can clearly see this probably isn't an ideal for Jesus. Uh, one more, the uncleanliness of women. For those of you who have had the joy of reading through Leviticus, you're very familiar with cleanliness and uncleanliness. Leviticus 15:19. when a woman has a discharge, if her discharge in her body is blood, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Uh, for those of you who don't know what that means, I'll let you ask the person next to you, but essentially, um, during a woman's cycle, she was considered unclean. Uh, they were supposed to go outside the camp into a tent um, and have that taken care of during those seven days, separate from others, because if you came in contact with her, you were considered unclean, uh, because her discharge was considered unclean. And then going back to the Mishnah, this one's in specifically related to Samaritans, um, Samaritan girls are considered menstruating women from the time they lie in their cradle, and the Samaritan men impart ritual impurity to the lower bedding like the upper bedding. So what this one is referring to is Jews considered Samaritans unclean from the day of their birth. They did not see them as keeping with the rituals of cleanliness. They didn't consider them to follow the Jewish law. And so basically, since a woman was perpetually considered unclean, if you were a Samaritan, then any man that lied with a Samaritan was also considered unclean. So with that point of view, the Jewish nation would have considered every single Samaritan unclean continually, always. 
This is just one part of the rift of why Jews did not like Samaritans. They did not believe they kept with God's law, and they, they couldn't be around them. They couldn't touch them, because uh, then they would have been ritually unclean, unable to go into the temple, unable to participate in Jewish activities. Um, and so a huge rift that existed between these two cultures. And a quick summary then, uh, some other points. Uh, women usually did not initiate divorce. They could initiate divorce. They generally did not. It was usually um, a man's initiative. Man brought it forth. Um, and then usually when a man then initiated divorce, the woman had no say. Uh, she could not refute it. She could not rebuttal it. She could not fight against it. It was just, this is what it is. This is what he wants. And let's move on. Uh, women generally did not own land. With a key exception story, which I think you're supposed to think about, uh, Numbers 27, you'll see a group of women, the daughters of, I can't say his name, but it's really long, um, they, they had no more men in their family. They were an Israelite clan, and all the men had died. And so when they're divvying out land, they go to Moses, and they say, hey, we have no man to inherit land. And so Moses goes to God and says, well, what do I do? We need a man here. And God says, no, you don't. You can give them this land. And so it's a, it's a huge exception story um, in this idea of women can't own land, which, again, is God was doing that, uh, not the people. So, but in the most part, women did not own land because if you own land, you had money. And if you had money, you were prominent in your community. And for the most part, not always, but for the most part, women generally weren't prominent figures in their community. Uh, women were certainly not religious leaders, not by any degree, not by any stretch of the imagination, uh, not in any context. Because uh, the, the whole priesthood, uh, all the Levites who served in the temple, the tabernacles, they were all men um, in every position. However, women did tasks seen as important as men. They weren't necessarily devalued in their community. They were seen as valuable. They managed households and in general were seen, were seen as just as valuable as men, yet overarching social, political, and religious community decisions were made by men. I think, you know, if you look up kind of um, different people's opinions on ancient Israel and what was happening in the day, you'll get the gambit of opinions. A lot of people will say, all these women were oppressed. You know, they were made to stay at home. They had to raise their kids. Um, but if you said that to women today, I think a lot of women would, would they want to do that. Women get enjoyment out of raising their children and out of keeping their homes. So that in and of itself is not a negative. Um, but I think what we focus on heavily is then what was happening in the community. As a community whole, we say, oh, well, men were dominant, men were ruling. Um, and so you'll get a whole variety of people who say they were uber-oppressed. Some were saying, no, they weren't that oppressed. Um, but in general, scholarly thought is still that, um, though not in always... Not always the case, and difficult to generalize. Uh, scholars assert that ancient women were often marginalized, oppressed, and encouraged to be submissive. Um, very much a male-dominated society, not always aggressively, not always oppressively, but certainly that did happen. Um, we live in a broken, fallen world, and we don't always do things the most ideal way. Um, and these women certainly did not have, re- have every advantage or opportunity that many do in 21st century Western culture. Um, and so we tend to hone in on that. However, I would just always say, with a degree of uh, reflection, bear in mind the time they're in, the place they're in, the culture they're in, and, and be appreciative of how they got where they're at, again, in a broken, fallen world. So, with that in mind, I realize that's a lot. Um, that was just a little snippet of what you'll find. Let's bring that now into Jesus. How did Jesus see women? And this is for you.
God didn't see women the way Talmud or Mishnah saw women. So we got to stay away from That's the danger of commentary, of men jumping in and explaining what God meant, what God said, such and such. And so uh, Jesus did not see women the way mankind sees So Tony makes a comment that um, Jesus was a liberator of women. And that just because the Talmud had commentaries in it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you should listen to. And it, and it would seem at first flavor, Jesus did not have the same opinion as these men did. Um, he saw women as much more valuable. Anybody else? Equal heirs. Stephen says he saw them as equal heirs. Excellent. Anybody else? Without women, you have no men. And Paul even talks about that at one point. Yeah. It's kind of a fundamental physical requirement. You know, we're not asexual creatures, so we have to find another pair. Anybody else? So we're going to go um, to first the Samaritan woman. And we're going to... Yeah, we have time. We're going to read chapter 4. And if you can't see that, sorry, uh, you can use your Bibles. But we're going to be chapter 4, uh, verses 7, I think it's about 39. So, and then chapter 4, just a quick intro. Jesus and his disciples go to Samaria. Keep in mind what Samaria is, a land of perpetually unclean people. Um, and they come to a well, and his disciples go into the town to buy food. And so now Jesus is left alone at this well, and a woman comes to him. So starting in verse 7 of chapter 4. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, though you are a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I am a Samaritan woman? Keeping in mind everything we just talked about. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus replied to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself, and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw water. He said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This which you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and yet you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one must worship. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship that. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming, and even now has arrived, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. And then John says, He who is called Christ. When the one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, 
I am he, the one speaking to you. And at this point his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What are you seeking? Or why are you speaking with her? So the woman left her water pot and went to the city and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is he? They left the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I tell you, raise your eyes and observe the fields. They are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the one who sows and the one who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have come into their labor. Now from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one truly is the Savior of the world. Hopefully you noticed some of the things that was just mentioned that Jesus directly uh, counters against. So, as mentioned, Jews were despised by the Samaritans. We touched on the unclean part. Uh, the half-breed, uh, they considered them um, not even uh, pure Jews, for they were part, their ancestry comes from the northern kingdom when Israel was separated in two and the Assyrians took them out. And essentially the Jews that remained intermarried um, with, with, with other nations. And so the Samaritans weren't considered unclean, so, or weren't considered true Jews. So, again, just more fuel for the fire of why the Jews um, in general hated Samaritans and did not want to associate with them. And so now you have Jesus, a Jewish male rabbi, um, seen as one of the prominent figures. Or he his position would have been held in, in high esteem. I mean, essentially, he was comparable to, you know, the Nicodemus of the world. Um, you're supposed to look up to these men. They're supposed to set the, the, the golden standard for how a, a rabbi or a male should act. And so he should be following all the rules of the Jewish law. He should be upholding all the things that we previously hit on. Because now he's approaching a woman. He's approaching a female Samaritan woman of low status. And if you look up anything about this story, nine times out of ten, someone's going to mention that this woman had a tainted past. Um, she, was, she was deep in sexual impurity. Um, a lot of that's inferred. You have to start assuming some things about this woman to get there. We're not necessarily told that. Granted, if she really has five husbands, they could have all died. They could have all divorced her. We don't know. Um, But be careful not to necessarily assume that this woman um, has a terrible past. Um, But a lot of people will assume that. And so paint her in an even worse picture of why Jesus and this woman should have nothing to do with each other. I mean, had had Jewish tradition been upheld in this scenario, he would have ignored her at the well. She would have drawn her water and left. But that's not what we saw happen. He went to her. He approached her. And it's funny, if, you, if, if you've been reading, you see in John eight forty-eight they use this you know, term of being a Samaritan negatively to Jesus. 
The Jews say, oh, you must be a Samaritan because he's saying a bunch of things they don't like. And then they accuse him of having a demon. Um, so that's just, again, more, more background of why being a Samaritan was so bad. I mean, it was so bad it was a derogatory term to call someone. I mean, it's, uh, the closest thing you could think of is like you called someone a Nazi, I guess, back in World War II. I mean, it was, it, was, it was bad. It was horrible. No one wants to be called that. And they were so quick to throw it out at Jesus. But Jesus approaches and speaks and offers participation uh, in ritual uncleanliness to drink with this woman. Uh, verse, I believe it's 9, when, it, when he mentions that, you know, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. That's not, a, that's not like a hangout association. Um, the underlying, or the better interpretation of that is really talking about Jews don't use the same utensils as Samaritans. So for Jesus to ask her for a drink of water, knowing that she's going to use her own, and she even mentions it, you don't have a bucket. How are you going to get water? You'd have to use mine. You'd have to touch mine and drink out of mine, and you can't do that because you think I'm unclean. Jesus ignores that, and he specifically makes a comment, you know, refuting that. I want to drink after you. I want to participate in the same water that you're drinking. Clearly, he then goes into something not talking about physical water, um, but it blew her mind. That's why she makes that first statement. Why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Because it just it wouldn't have been done. And Jesus emphatically doesn't want her to see him in that light. You know, he's not picketing necessarily, but he's he's going against communal or the community uh, mindset to do what he knows is is a better way to live. It's a better thing to do. And an interesting fact that I didn't know about um, until I've, I read it was that it's this is the longest single conversation Jesus has with any person throughout the Gospels. Throughout all four Gospels. The longest conversation Jesus has is with a Samaritan woman. Just I don't, That just made me kind of take a step back. Here we have God incarnate. We have the entire Hebrew scriptures wrapped into a man. And the person he's, that these four authors, however many authors wrote the Gospels, the, the key conversation is a Samaritan woman. If that doesn't make you think for a second, then I, I don't know how to get that point across. There's something happening here. Jesus is, is deliberately defying his community, but he's not doing it hatefully. He's not doing it out of anger. He's trying to show something. And John is highlighting this story beautifully so that all his readers will pick up on that same thing. This is not just a story about, oh, as a woman, she was a Samaritan. Okay, it's you're supposed to spend time and get into the depth of what this means. Jesus is turning that community upside down to show something more meaningful and more powerful. And I have a few different ways that I thought help kind of break this down. Um, he shows inclusiveness. He specifically attacks the prejudice and the racism that was going on in that day to speak to this woman. Um, he teaches her in direct violation to what most rabbis would have done. You didn't have female um, proselytes you did, or, or female students. You know, Rabbis were surrounded by men. They taught men. They didn't teach women. But here Jesus is teaching her. Uh, in, in John, we've already heard about living water and eternal life, but this is the first mention of true worshipers. He's giving her theological claims and theological truths that have been told to no one else as far as John's account. I mean, this is huge implications of teaching this and, you know, and not only teaching now new foundational truths to a woman. Uh, he validates her twice. Did you see that? 17 and 18, he says, what you have said is correct and what you have said is true. But we're living in a community that didn't care what women thought. Their testimony was invalid. They couldn't be in a courtroom. And Jesus says it twice. 
And if you've ever spent time in, in Genesis, uh, when you go to Joseph's dream, and he has the dream twice, and God says it was twice because two times meant it was going to happen. It was valid. So Jesus doing it twice isn't incidental. Um, it's to confirm that what this woman is doing is powerful and that she has validity in his life. And then he doesn't necessarily do it with words, but he certainly doesn't restrain her. She goes and she, she proclaims the good news to her entire city. I mean, and he didn't tell her to do it. It was what was happening. She just had the Messiah face-to-face say, I am he, and her reaction is, i got to go tell everybody else. She runs, she drops her water pot, and she goes to this city and, and wants to tell them this amazing thing that just happened to her. Um, and, it's, and it's one way of Jesus commissioned her to go do that. He didn't refrain her from the. And then you also notice, if you've been following through John, this is the first time Jesus directly tell someone, I am the Messiah. With, with Nicodemus, he didn't do it. With, um, at the beginning, when he was calling his disciples, he didn't directly say it. John the Baptist did, but Jesus didn't. This is the first recorded instance in the book of John that he says, I am the Messiah. And he tells it to a woman, <laughs> nobody else around. A woman who, if she had then gone and told someone in the city, they shouldn't have listened to her. Oh, you're, you're crazy. Whatever. Your statement doesn't matter. And he's giving this information, this huge information, because what is the main thing that happens after the resurrection? Go tell people that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's risen. But he tells it to a woman. And then she single-handedly saves her entire city. They came to Jesus because of what she did. They acknowledged that their faith wasn't based then upon what she said after they met Jesus, but she introduced Jesus to her entire city. Correct, yes. Yeah, so Liz makes a comment that if, if she was a, a total outcast in her community, why would they have listened to her? And so, again, that, that also goes to the point of she probably wasn't uh, necessarily, you know, this, this, this you know, a woman of uh, misregard, you know, uh, of you know, being involved in sexual sin. She probably did have some position, maybe, in the city because they listened to her. They heard her. They didn't write her off, but they followed her out to meet Jesus. So Tracy's, so Tracy's comment is that even if, if she was a woman of ill repute and she was misregarded, uh, that may have actually made her statement even more powerful because she, if, she, if that's the position she was in, she probably would not have then gone into her city and say, hey, here's a man who knows all the things I've done. The fact that Jesus then took her from a place of lowly like sin-death state and quickly changed her mind to proclaim the Messiah is one opportunity. And it does paint a beautiful picture of that story as well.
Yeah. So Stephen's making the comment. Yeah, so if someone was, you know, the Samaritans and the Jews would have been looking for the Messiah. They had, they had the same, um, you know, scriptures, the Torah to speak to. And so her coming to the city saying, hey, I found the Messiah, that should have gotten people's attention. Um, and she's also, uh, you know, I guess to either point, she had information, you know, because she even mentions we're looking for the Messiah. So it's not like she didn't know about him. There, she had some background there. So, she, there, so, you know, again, who knows what the full story of her life is. Um, but I think at least what we're trying to hone in on today is that he should never have even spoken with her. And now she becomes this huge, you know, witness to who Jesus is as the coming Messiah who comes to save the world. And we're going to run out of time if we focus too much on the others. But uh, Martha, uh, we touched on her a little bit last week in chapter 11. You see at the beginning of that, um, Jesus says he, he has a strong emotional attachment to Martha, to Mary, and to Lazarus. I mean, he, and again, a, a man having a strong relationship, we didn't touch on this earlier, but having affections towards a woman, not his wife, would not have been um, something that was done in the day. Um, in some of the other missionary writings, you'll find where it talks about men actually weren't supposed to talk to women on the street. Um, if it wasn't your wife, you weren't supposed to talk to her because um, it could lead to, you know, larcidious actions or, or all kinds of uh, impurities uh, if you got involved with her. And even they, and a lot of times you weren't supposed to even talk to your own wife in the streets. You were supposed to wait till you got home. So the fact that Jesus had affectionate, close relationships with women was already breaking uh, cultural norms at the time. And then again, we have more I am statements given to women. Jesus gives her two. He says he's the resurrection and the life. And so now, and there's, there's, there's seven prominent I am statements, and of those already, we have three of them given directly to women in private settings. Uh, Martha, there probably were other people around, but he's talking directly to her. He's revealing theological truth directly to Martha, uh, a woman who wasn't supposed to be taught, who wasn't supposed to have a voice, who wasn't supposed to be a witness, and here Jesus is completely doing the opposite of what his community and his culture was telling him to do. And then she makes a profound statement of faith in the very next verse, um, which it's interesting because when you compare all the stories of men in John, the men come up way short compared to the women. The women profess faith more predominantly than men do. And you do have Peter will do it in chapter 6, but even his is almost like, we don't know where else to go, so we'll follow you. Whereas Martha makes a profound statement that you are the Christ. And so you're getting this contrast as you read through John very subtly, but if you, if you pick up on the nuances, women come out ahead for some reason. Um, and you're meant to catch that. Mary, she's the first person who ever saw the resurrected Christ. And in that story, John specifically takes the time to tell you, Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, presumably John, they went to the tomb first. They were there. They saw the stone rolled away. They looked inside why didn't Jesus appear to them? Why didn't he pick them? He chose Mary. And you'll, re- depending on whose opinion you take, um, hopefully by now you've seen that everything that happens in John is for a reason. He did not just fill fill paper space. God, through the Spirit, and Jesus worked on this man's heart to write these words. And you'll also notice every gospel attributes the first appearance of the resurrection to a woman. All four. There's a little discrepancies on who was there, but all four will tell you women saw him first. And if that doesn't, and they, they wouldn't have made this up. 
if they were trying to follow the, the cultural times of the day, they certainly would have, wouldn't have written that the best testimony you can find on the resurrection of Jesus came from a woman. They would have written him off, which just goes to all the more to show you that this isn't, it's not made up. It's real. It has power. And we're going to run out of time. Um, so Jesus clearly, through these examples, he dramatically elevates the rationale of teaching, of revealing, of validating, and commission women to do things for the kingdom. So, where did Jesus get his elevated view of women? Did he just, is this a new concept? Did he bring it with him when he came? I'm getting some head shaking. No, no, this came from somewhere. It was all the way back to the beginning. When you go to the Eden ideal, we're going to have to blow through this. Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man. The word is humanity. Not a gender male, but all of humanity. In his own image, in the image of God, he created him, referring back to the word man, referring to all of humanity. Male and female, he created them. God intended from his ideal for men and women to co-rule the world. There is no emphasis here on hierarchy. God is intentionally setting a precedence in his ideal world. Men and women are equal. And it makes perfect sense when you think about the, the atmosphere that God and Jesus and the Spirit live in. You don't have a God who's alone. You have God and Jesus living in a perpetual state of love, surrounded by the Spirit. So one image of that is to create two individuals who live in a perpetual state of love, to reflect the Godhead. One man alone isn't an image of God. The collective of male and female is the image of God. So now as you move on then, Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. This is the first instance in creation that God acknowledges something isn't good. All throughout Genesis 1, you get all these repetitions of, That's good, that's good, that's good. And when he's done, that's very good. But now you hear, Wait a minute, something's not right. Something needs to be fixed. Eve completes this picture of goodness by making the garden whole. She brings Adam what he was lacking to now have the, t- the two together to image God. And this word helper is this word azer. And that word helper is not a maid. It's not a servant, but it's an indispensable other, a necessary, a vital. Think about it. If mankind was told to be fruitful and multiply, how does Adam alone be fruitful and multiply? Without this azer, without Eve, there is no way to be fruitful and multiply. She fulfills this requirement for Adam to go and do what God commanded him to do. And it's interesting, if you look up this word through the Old Testament in every single reference, except right here, although you could argue this is what this is, it always refers to Yahweh's deliverance of his people. (laughs) So, if you take this word helper, apply it to, it always refers to Yahweh saving his people, then now Eve becomes Adam's deliverer. She becomes a precursor to what we're looking for in the hopeful Messiah of Jesus. She rescues Adam because Adam couldn't do it alone. And she is a form and a function of Yahweh's deliverance for him. 
Moving on then, Genesis 2:22, And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Um, do any of you, and that word is, the T is silent, so it's selah. Um, and I want to read you a commentary quote, because he'll say it better than I do. Uh, the word selah is used about 40 times in the Hebrew Bible, but it is not an anatomical term in any passage. In other words, it doesn't refer to biology. It doesn't refer to a bone. Uh, it doesn't refer to a rib. Outside of Genesis 2, with the exception of 2 Samuel 16:13, which refers to the other side of a hill, the word is only used architecturally in the tabernacle temple passages. It can refer to planks or beams and thing in these passages, but more often it refers to one side or the other. Typically when there are two sides, rings along two sides of the ark, rooms on two sides of the temple, the north or south side. On the basis of Adam's statement, uh, which is when he makes that quick poem about like bone of my bone, combined with these data on usage, we would have to conclude that God took one of Adam's sides, literally meaning he cut Adam in half from one side, built the woman. Adam and Eve are a 50-50 split. She was not made from a portion of him. She was made from half of him. And so that's why you then get that statement that we refer to marriage. Genesis 2.24. He's referring to, I took one, I made it into two, and when you come back together, this is the ideal. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Why? Because when you come together in unity, you represent God. You represent the fundamental reason of why I made you, which was to symbolize my presence on earth, was to rule on earth together. Um, it's a profound statement when you think, when you see Eve not as a lesser than came to kind of assist Adam, but she is a co-equal with him, which we don't have time to go through it. But then if you go look at the curse, the curse deliberately goes back to these exact things. You know, you read in 3.16 where it talks she's going to have a desire for her husband, the a better translation of that is her desire will be contrary to her husband. They will have animosity. They won't get along. Um, when it talks about pain and childbirth, the, the bigger emphasis there is that it's going to be difficult for her to get pregnant because their relationship is fractured. Because they don't care about each other. And you're going to see this repeated over and over in Genesis. Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob and his wives. Judah and Tamar. You keep seeing this pattern over and over again because people are broken and they have lost this ideal of what God wanted for them. And you immediately, in Genesis 4, and I forget, 4 or 5, you see Lamech, you know, and he's like, he's coming up as this big jerk who all he cares about is dominance and ruling his wives, which then stands in drastic contrast to what God was trying to do from the original ideal. And so you have to say, so What? What are you supposed to do with this? So Jesus thought women were fantastic and he was trying to bring back Eden's ideal. Who cares? We don't live in that world. We don't live in, the, in, a, in a perfect utopia. Um, and you're going to find lots of opinions. Uh, lots of people on both sides, in the middle, all around. And I'm not here to tell you which opinion to listen to. All I know is what Jesus has told us. And he says, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled nor fearful. This should not scare you. Jesus isn't a, a God of fear. Not in that way. He's trying to get you to listen, to learn, to love. And when you spend time in prayer and meditation, God will speak to you through his word and through the spirit. And he guides. Similarly, um, he says, I am giving you a new commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you. We, we live in a, we have a huge past in humanity of dominance, of destruction, of chaos. 
which is not God's ideal. And so if you, I, I just make a claim that if you come to something again, especially in the book of John, and it doesn't lead you to life in Christ, revisit it, rethink it, spend time with it. You're supposed to sometimes struggle with the scriptures. It's not always supposed to be easy. If you're always comfortable and it's easy, then you're probably doing something wrong. Um, you're meant to spend time because transformation isn't a one-day process. Sanctification doesn't happen overnight. Um, spend time in it and find out things. And very quickly, before we run out of time, John 8, the adulterous woman, probably my favorite story in the book of John, um, which it's funny because it wasn't originally written by John as the prominent viewpoint. It was added later. And we, don't, we won't go through that at the moment, but you'll even see the footnotes I bet in your Bible. But I think it was added later because early Jesus' followers picked up on this theme. They were honing in on this idea that women were supposed to be somehow seen more important than their community was seeing it. Because as you go through the story of the adulterous woman, it don't have it in the notes, but you'll start hearing calls back to Eden uh, very subtly, uh, but they're there, and it's really fun to pick up on those. But essentially, it's depicting a broken, fearful, and hate-fueled society. Uh, these people brought this woman because they didn't care about this woman. Uh, they actually brought her falsely. There's a good chance that, you know, they mentioned, oh, she should be stoned per Mosaic law. But there's only a few instances when you stone people. And the likelihood that she was one of those is questionable, considering that their motives were they cared less about this woman, and they cared about trapping Jesus. Um, and they were willing to sacrifice her life for their own selfish gain to diminish Christ. Yet what does Jesus do? And I do infer a little bit, this is this, also the story we talks about riding on the ground, which is a fun one to rabbit trail, which we don't have time for clearly. But Jesus, I like to imagine he's on the ground with her. How do you ride on the ground unless you're on the ground? And they probably threw her into the middle of this temple and, and he's there with her. And he's showing her love. He's showing her Compassion, And what does he say to her? Woman, did anyone condemn you? They should have. Their community would have. But they left because Jesus brings something better. Brings it, Jesus brings something more powerful and more meaningful. And he did not condemn her. But he showed her grace and compassion that her community would have said, you don't do that. And I think what we're supposed to see in that story is that we are the woman. And that Satan throws us down in front of the Lord and says, look how worthless they are. Look how trash they are. Condemn them for your own law. And God says, no. He says, no. Because that's not what he came to do. And I think through this story of the women, we're, we see ourselves. You're meant to see yourself. You're meant to see this huge community shift that Jesus is trying to turn the world upside down on its head because there's something more powerful and more meaningful than your prejudices. And you need to hate one another because hate doesn't bring life. Not in the way Jesus meant it. And because I can't help it, uh, two classes, which I already mentioned these before. Here's two other ones. Um, if, uh, there's one on Adam to Noah and then one on the book of Ephesians. And if you're familiar with this concept of women, Ephesians chapter 5 is a huge one that people will use to justify both ends of the spectrum. And I think they do an excellent job breaking it down. Um, so if you need, those are there. They're free. I, I highly suggest them. I know I'm trespassing on time, but uh, thank you for your attention. I do appreciate it.